Peer Review is a series of podcasts designed to shed light on the extraordinary breadth and diversity of talent that sit in the House of Lords. The House of Lords often gets a bad rap because it is thought to be a house of cronies and it is an unelected house. But I hope through these interviews you will see that there is this extraordinary talent, there is a great knowledge and experience, and with that I leave you to draw your own conclusions. Well, my guest today is General Lord Horton of Richmond in Yorkshire, who was Chief of the Defence Staff from 2013 to 2016 and now sits as a crossbench peer in the Lords. Nick, really good to see you. My pleasure. Uh, It must be an unbelievable moment when, for those that haven't been to the Lords, the coat of arms of all the former Chief of Defence Staff line the stairs as you go up. And the first one you come across at the moment is your own. So it must have been a great moment when that was was painted in. Yeah, and it's um, because a coat of arms is something that I never thought I'd ever have to worry about. And then it becomes um, an interactive process between Garter and the sort of the House of Heralds. But you involve all the families. So there's, there's a little bit, if there's, you probably haven't forced to study it too much. But oh, I have. There's a, there's a horse that's the wife, I'm the lion. Um, there's a, a book and a pen for my daughter who studied creative writing but then ended up being a librarian. There's a comedic mask of my comedian son. Yeah. But surmounting the... the the, the sort of the coronet of a baron is a Zetland hound. Ah. And actually the hound is Woodcock and he, he's astride a hunting horn because my wife still legally hunts to hounds with the Zetland hunt. And that's our home. And then there's some Yorkshire roses and Richmond Castle um, and the cross swords of the army. So they tell a remarkable story. And as you say, at the moment, just beyond the pier's entrance as you go up the stairs, the first one, sort of gold, silver, and lots of green, um, is my coat of arms. With and you the... follow, you, you know, this is a huge tradition because you walk through all the wars we've had, you know, Fieldhouse of the Falklands and Allenbrook and Gort and Montgomery and Mountbatten, then up through the First World War of Hague, Jellicoe and, and, and Kitchener, and then, of course, there's the coat of arms of even Nelson and, and the Duke of Wellington. So it must be a great moment. And then, of course, when you retired as uh, Chief of the Defence Staff, which, for those that don't know, is head of all the armed forces in 2016, you became Constable of the Tower of London. The which 160th. Is... Ah, I didn't realise you were that old. But um, what was that like? I mean, well, is it a sort of honorary job, is it? or No, uh, you say one that makes me sound old, 160th. I find that it makes me feel very proximate to the, the sort of the last thousand years of our history. So when William the Conqueror came over in 1066 with the Norman armies and he took London captive, he in, instantaneously appointed someone to look after the security of London. That was not to protect London from outside forces. It was to intimidate London to keep it under control because there were 10,000 local citizens who didn't take kindly to the arrival of this Norman army. So he appointed the chap, William de Mandeville, who had won the equivalent of the VC at the Battle of Hastings, his most loyal soldier in the field. And he put him in charge of the security of London. And pretty soon after, he gave instructions that they should build a a castle to intimidate Londoners. 
and he was therefore the first constable. And the castle was built in subsequent years, or the Tower of London was built uh, in subsequent years. And it does feel that there have only been 160 mm, constables in all that time. You know, those people like the Duke of Wellington. You, you do feel, right, I'm, I'm actually part of this history now. And it's a, uh, and for a chap who's sort of got a humble history degree at Oxford somewhere along the way, to have started off my military career with sort of 37 green-haired soldiers in a platoon, <laughs> I ended up with 37 beef eaters, and they were just as unruly and every bit as vagabondish as that first platoon, I think. <laughs> were you there? I think you were there when the, that wonderful poppy display. So the, 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 the ceramic poppies was in my predecessor's time, um, a fellow regimental officer from the Green House, Richard Dennett. And in my time, we did um, the torches, which was 10,000 oh, yeah. torches, which illumined, but that would have to be sort of quite pomp compact in time. And then whether or not it was a success or otherwise, it was a success, but for a briefer time than we'd hoped, we did the super bloom for the Queen's Jubilee, the Platinum Jubilee. And now we're in the sort of the aftermath of that, the sustainment phase. But sadly, I had to, even though I got a, an extra year as constable because of COVID, I had to finish last summer. And my wife is still in emotional meltdown that she's no longer <laughs> living in uh, the oldest and best preserved Tudor house in London. Uh, were you brought up in a military family? Not at all. My father was a private soldier, um, firstly in the Home Guard and a little bit in the signals um, towards the very end of the Second World War. Uh, my grandfather also was one of those who was a bit too young for the First World War and too old for the Second, but he did some time in the Home Guard. And my father uh, was actually a Lancastrian. He was in the textile business. He was a professional dyer. But he worked in what was, um, he worked a dyeing cotton. And when Manchester cotton succumbed to man-made synthetic fibres, mm. his trade was ended. So he came to Yorkshire to ply it with woolen materials. Yeah. And so I was a, I became a Yorkshire. I was a Yorkshireman born in Ottawa in 1950. Your grandfather was a decent bloke because my family were all from Manchester and our Lancastrians. And of course, the battle goes on between both counties. So going to Oxford... Uh, as you alluded to before, had you at that point decided you wanted to become in the military? Or, or no, I'd, I'd already committed. And um seems strange now looking back, but the natural entry point of officers into Sandhurst in those days was not post-university. It was, uh, was post-school. And only one in 10 army officers had a degree. In fact, they I thought that army officers were de with degrees were somewhat suspicious. <laughs> but I joined at the time. So I went to Sandhurst at 18. And I didn't go up to Oxford until I was almost 23. I'd already done Sandhurst, been commissioned. I'd done three tours of Northern Ireland. I'd had a posting in Berlin where I guarded Rudolf Hess. I felt very intimate to the Cold War and the Russians. I used to guard the military train as it went. Well, let's just stop on, yeah. on, on all that because uh, you, you mentioned Hess. I mean, you must have met him, I suppose. Yes, sort of at a distance as he went round his garden and came out of his prison. He had the freedom to roam with inside the walls of Spandau. And under the quadripartite agreement following the Second World War, Berlin was, as you know, the whole of East Germany was overrun by the, or was taken by the, uh, the Russians, but Berlin itself was administered under a quadripartite agreement. And there were four sectors, a, a Russian, a French, an mm. American, and a British one. And it happened that Spandau was within the British sector. But the guarding of Hess rotated between troops of the four nations. And we took it, um, 
it, I don't know whether or not it was 10 days or a month at a time. And then I think we took over from the Americans and handed over to the Russians. And you were what, French a lieutenant? Were, so I was a lieutenant. I would and, be, and, but, I mean, you must have got some idea of what Hess was like. Oh, yes, absolutely. And the, he scared the living daylights out of young soldiers from the northeast because there were little um, watchtowers that had an element of intervisibility, but at night, um, all was dark. The place which had um, been used as a concentration camp and in which many people had died, there were gas chambers still there. Everybody felt that it was one of those places, a bit like the Tower of London. If, if there were ghosts anywhere, there were ghosts in places like that. So when um, Hess came out in the middle of the night and went to the foot of the watchtowers and clanged on the, the bottom of the... Goodness. It sent the shivery levers up the, um, up the young soldiers. And actually, over the time, um, there were a number of cases, not on a day-to-day -day basis, but a number of cases of young soldiers, not just from the English, but from French-American armies, uh, committing suicide out of fear of what was going to happen to them. And God. Hess was, um, he staggered around in an old um, sort of greatcoat and a pair of Wellingtons, I suppose, leather boots. And he still, well into his 80s, he attempted to sort of frog march in a very sinister and um, Nazi fashion that you really did think that you were proximate to the devil incarnate. But you would never have a, a conversation with him. You would never attempt to mm. do that. And that, actually, that was verboten because of the four governors, each from the representative nations that wouldn't permit that. And then in 93, you went to Ireland. Well, 93, I went to Ireland again, um, if that's the right. I did seven tours of Northern Ireland. You did seven, my goodness, yeah. So I did three before I went to university. I, I literally, from, uh, yeah, from um, Sandhurst, um, I was posted straight out to where my battalion was undergoing an operational tour. And I stayed on a bit longer because they felt that wartime and operations was better than post-tour leave. So that was a small tour. And then I did two more the following years before the Berlin trip. And then in 77, I went up to Oxford, came back in 80. And actually spent one of my Oxford vacations in Ireland again. My goodness. Yeah, because it, I mean, dare I say, the privileges of an in-service degree officer, which is what we were called. So I was at Oxford between 23 and 25. I was being paid by then as a lieutenant. They gave me an accommodation allowance. They gave me a book allowance, a stationary allowance. So I was quite a well-to-do undergraduate. Mm. And actually, I were an older. Older. Yeah. Arguably, my administration was far better. I think that's <laughs> what got me a reasonable degree. Most of my contemporaries appeared to be constantly in a state of crisis. <laughs> they, they used to sort of write essays whilst I was in bed. They used to drink <laughs> when they should have been sleeping. They'd, they'd got the whole of their bodies out of... Whereas I'd had a few years of yours was iron army discipline, army iron discipline. discipline. Uh, but looking back at Ireland, you must have seen incredible danger and must have felt imperiled a lot of the time. And, and which were the sort of really difficult bits? As you you, you said, you've been there seven times or something. Seven, I suppose. Yeah. Um, strangely enough, I think that early on, when you go as a youngster, it's the reason you've joined. A lot in a lot of we say this about army recruiting now. There's always a recruiting lull when there isn't an operation on. And actually, for a young chap of 19, 20, 21, to go to an operational theatre and have intimate responsibility for 36 guys, albeit with a highly competent platoon sergeant and some NCOs, it, it was absolutely what you 
you know, people used to say this is the best thing you can do with your clothes on. You know, it, it is. It was thrilling because it was operationally rewarding and stimulating. And you were out on the streets out with on your the platoons, and you must have lost men. We we did, and particularly because at that time, two of those tours were down in uh, South Omar. Uh, it was the time when it was a sort of a no-go zone for vehicles. We moved everywhere by helicopter, quite often by night. There was a sense of an omnipresent danger from culvert bombs, from some really bad stuff. And in many ways, the incidents in rural Armagh were less frequent than they were perhaps in the cities, notably Belfast and Londonderry. But the magnitude of the impact of them with big explosions and multiple deaths were, were, were more concerning. But this sense, and I don't want to put it down to sort of you know, bullish, juvenile, um, testosterone or anything like that. But you you sort of were professionally honed by the presence of a threat, where in some other operational... And this, I could capture exactly the same in later days, when then as Chief of Joint Operations, responsible for all the overseas operations of the Army, I particularly felt it when I would go out and visit... Uh, in Afghanistan, where that same level of of threat, because you just knew statistically, law of averages or whatever, the bad stuff was going to happen, and were you going to catch it or were you going to be fortunate? And it and it has a remarkable sort of effect on um, humans' capacity to handle danger, sort of in in many ways be hyper alert because of it to an extent there's a kick out of it but you can actually sort of run out of metal a bit if you're exposed through to it fear. through fear and if it's if you're overexposed to it and dare i say the intensity with which youngish people and not so youngish people were being put back on tours bouncing at the time when we were attempting to do iraq and afghanistan at the same time you know, really grown-up people, um, it has now been sort of proven, have suffered some quite... Um, mental health mental issues. Mental significant PTSD issues and that sort of thing. And it, it doesn't... And I know the statistics that started off with the Falcons, all this. Those sorts of injuries, the mental injuries, don't often manifest themselves perhaps 10 or 14 years later. Mm. And then yeah. it comes as a bow wave. And you've been a general, of course, since 2002. Uh yeah, you've done more research on me than that. Yeah. Well, I'm so trying to probably, about, you know, at your age, right. you forget things, I know. But. No, you do, yeah. <laughs> so I was the thing, the thing that was pompously called the DMO, the Director of Military Operations in the MOD. That was as a brigadier. Yeah. Finished that in 2002 and was promoted to Major General. Went off to be the Chief of Staff of the ACE Rapid Reaction Corps, which is the, the British military's Rapid Reaction Corps that, that in those days lived in Germany. And then came back from that another operational job and then was earmarked it was already decided that i would go and be the chief of joint operations uh, but in the meantime go on an operational tour and the one that just it could have been an afghanistan one but it, the one that slotted best in for me was to be the deputy commanding general of, of, of the force out in iraq which was it's, it's not a necessary precondition for promotion but it's one of those things exposes you more and it's presumably collaborative with with 
the Americans. With the Americans. And it's the American link because in later life, most of those Americans that I know from there, David Petraeus. Was Petraeus your... Petraeus uh, was there as a three-star when I was there. Um, uh, Marty Dempsey, who became the American chief of staff when I was CDS, was there. Strangely enough, Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of State, worked for me, if you like. He was, because he had the core there. Now, he's the core commander and I was the deputy, but I was the... I was the deputy of the higher formation. So yeah. um, so I got to ha make lots of American friends, which were hugely useful then in later yeah. later jobs. What was the deployment? What were you having to do? Um, well, it pre, it, 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 I was not there at the time of what became the Petraeus surge. Yeah. So if you like, without going into the, di the, the fact that um, national uh, UK's national strategy to an extent diverged from American strategy when we were pulling out um, and we were on a timeline for pulling out and that was the agreed thing that we were going to do because it was for, it was the, the general sense of it that the longer that international forces um, were there the more they became the enemy of two opposing forces within the country and that if we could be extracted, the the residual violence would be self-limiting and the scale of the build-up of Iraqi forces would be sufficient to deal with this. The Petraeus surge came after because Petraeus thought, no, we can still actually win this thing in a way. I'm, I'm being yeah, slightly yeah, briefed. Yeah. Um, and so in many ways, we were in relative um, harmony. But the, during the time that I was there, the country itself came very close to the point of um, serious civil war. Uh, I can remember the Samara Mosque mm, being mm, sabotaged. Yeah, yeah. That was, and that emotionally got to the period of civil war. It was the time when Iran was um, getting ever more what they call lethal aid smuggling over the border to assist the cause of uh, Muqtad al-Salab down in the, in the south. So we, we were never without stuff happening, but I don't think that, um, uh, other than the, 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 the threat of incipient civil war, that was the major Do you think we've done the right thing by Iraq, though, after all that? You know, it's hard to say, and I, and I think it's going to be one of these generational things. Yeah. I, mean, I think it's, it, it's very easy to rush to clever dick strategic conclusions that effectively by toppling Saddam we took um, a tyrant off a pressure cooker and the thing exploded. And we'd have been better to let the pressure cooker still have a tyrant on top of it. I, I think you, you're going to have to wait a couple of generations before you realize potentially, one hopes, that in actual fact, although it was horrific at the time, it has been to the longer term betterment. It's, it's one of those things that I don't think you can take even in a decade. And the same could be said of Libya, I suppose. I think so. Uh, and you must have had a cursory involvement in Libya. You, I, I was the vice chief then. Yeah. So the vice chief is undoubtedly the dirty jobs officer yeah. of defense. And um, the, the th I mean, and in many ways, a lot of people pulled Prime Minister Cameron's leg that he, he, he saw this as an opportunity on his watch. Um, they ran a very good air campaign that mm -hmm. brought about a certain second circumstances. But dare I say, I think he fell foul, we fell foul, collectively fell foul over the mantra of no boots on the ground, which, if you like, was the societal aftermath of the casualties we'd sustained in Afghanistan and Iraq, when arguably 
a ground force deployed early on might have had the ability to stabilize the country before then local um, you know uh, local gangmasters took over but um, it is a huge country with a very small population it's yeah. amazing isn't it yeah you you mentioned earlier afghanistan yeah. i mean what are your what what was your take from your time spent there and I think that we were absolutely right. Well, were we right to do what we did in the aftermath of 9-11? I'll leave that for politicians and pundits to decide on that. I think that our early leadership of getting the, of defeating effectively uh, the Taliban in Kabul and putting them to flight was absolutely the right thing to do. And what we should have then done is capitalize on that success there and then and there may have been an opportunity for an early stabilization of Afghanistan and some sort of an accommodation to buy the Taliban back into some power sharing might then have become part of that. What effectively was then we sat on our haunches and did nothing and we were still preoccupied by Iraq. And then this slow build up to an idea about, right, it's unfinished business there, now, uh, still in, in Afghanistan. And what we need to do is rather than us have a sort of a stabilization mission in the north and a peacekeeping thing in Kabul and an American counter-terrorist operation going sort of mad down in the south, we need to somehow put all this on a coherent footing of a single mission under a single commander to bring stability to the whole place. And it was, it, it felt to many like the right thing to be doing at the time. I think relatively early on sensible observers realized that we'd um, probably bitten off more than was sensible and we'd not done it in a wholly coherent way and why is that is it does it fall between the stools of politicians civil servants and, and the military or yeah um just gets into compromise or what it does a bit i mean the to an extent, the politicians always want the military to be able to do everything on a budget. Yeah. Um, when you come to coalition operations in the early days, you tend to find that national capitals run their national contribution through a straw rather than allowing the theatre commander to command it as a coherent entity. Anyway, we, we're about to get to the peak of your career where you return from all this incredible service that you've seen in very dangerous countries and you've you know you've been very modest about your involvement in, and you get chosen to be chief of defense staff which is the greatest possible honor you can have as a, a, a serving uh, military person from all forces were your parents still alive no no so no 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 my sadly my um i think my both my parents died or became sort of incapacitated by the time I was a full colonel. My father oh, and so a long time ago. So they weren't just, there to no, they would not have, to share the they would not have found what I've achieved credible. <laughs> they just simply would not that's not because they didn't think I was a great bloke. But they just it it is so out of their Yeah. You know, to think that I'm up there with monk no, I'm not that yeah. up there yeah. with no, monk no, no, but you know no, what I mean. No. Well you've achieved the greatest um as we said earlier. So you, you end up in a fairly political role, don't you? Because you, yeah. you're reporting, presumably, to the um, Secretary of State for 
defence, who was uh, Liv Hammond and Michael Fallon, I think, during your time. Yeah. And obviously, you know, their master, um, well, two of them, weren't there? Um, two prime ministers. So in actual fact, through my time as CDS, it was always David Cameron, with a bit of Nick Clegg thrown in earlier on. Uh, two sixteen, uh, you would have had someone else. No, because, well, uh, I can tell this story now because I was flying back with Prime Minister David Cameron from the Warsaw NATO summit on the weekend that he already knew he was standing down as leader, but he didn't think he was going to stand down until the time of the uh, conference. And it was over the weekend where I think the two uh, residual candidates to replace him, Theresa May and Andrea Leadsom, Andrew Leadsom made some fateful statement yes, of course. about being a better candidate because she had children. And as we flew back on the plane, we were having actually a dinner in the front of um, Air Force One, as we call it, or the, uh, the smart Cameronian jet. Um, and David Cameron said she won't survive the weekend. And she didn't. Andrew Leadsom stood down on the Sunday night. But David Cameron was due to give me my farewell leaving party in the garden of number 10 on the, I think it was the Wednesday evening. It was either the Tuesday or the Wednesday evening. And on the Monday morning, I got into work and the MA, the, the military assistant to the Prime Minister, phoned up to my outer office and said, the Prime Minister's going to have to pull the party. Well, what do you mean? He said, well, he's, he's, he's out <laughs> Monday morning, uh, Tuesday morning and, the new, and Theresa May's in picking a cabinet. So... He, nobody wants the flotsam and jetsam of your military life parading <laughs> down Downing Street in order to give them to some party. Well, you ended this job at far too young an age. You were just you were sort of sixty-ish, and you know, full of life and energy and experience. Obviously, you then went to Tower of London, but you've been a you you, you went to the House of Lords. Great for us. You, you're very active there now. You, you asked a question, I think, today, and you mm. you, you you make speeches and. I yeah. think this is the richness of the Lords in that we can have your expertise and it's fantastic that you, you come, down to, come down to it. But the rest of the time, I, I think you're writing scripts for your comedian son, aren't you? I, I'm Who's not writing Tom scripts. Horton. Undoubtedly, the Horton family is the inspiration behind much of his comedy. But now he also has been thrown out of the Tower of London because he wrote scripts together. To live with me. Um, <laughs> so he's... Well, no, it... Um, no, but quite a lot of it, it, it's. I mean, you might not have seen or visited any of his comedy. He does take the Mickey out of himself and his situation, and a lot of it is, you know, growing up as the son of a high achiever is a difficult place to be. And there's, thank goodness he didn't enter the military. No. I mean, that would. But it added a, added humour, of course. Yeah. It would have been like the, 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 the he would have performed in the during the war for the uh, keeping the troops entertained. Nick, thank you so much for sparing the time. I think the one question to finish on is what being in the House of Lords means to you and, and what do you think you bring to it? Um, the House of Lords is a remarkable place. If I'm absolutely honest, my, my feelings about it are mixed. Um, it's full of all sorts of human frailty, but all sorts of human brilliance. And at its best, um, it is... A remarkable institution. And I do think it's a great shame that the occasional elements of human fallibility and frailty <laughs> and all that on which life. the media sees completely discolours to the, the wider public 
quite what an efficient and valuable place it is. Because it is, um, the vast majority of it is, is an assembly, an aggregation of the best functional talent that our country has got. And that's against particularly the people that represent medicine, education, business, the arts, culture, hopefully diplomacy, law. military, law, and all these things. And you've got everything from a bishop, you've got people coming from all sorts of wacky angles. I come from it from a perspective which nobody really understands when they're worried about killer robots. That a battlefield is probably from a legal, humanitarian, moral standpoint, the way in which we fight as the British Armed Forces, the most highly regulated place on earth. And the way, and, and um, but people have no concept of the way we regulate the use of lethal force. But, and when you bring that sort, and you realize that even a whole range of highly intelligent people, because they haven't come across it before, uh, but it's the, it's the same in every profession. Yeah, of course. So if you get a, a, a medical professor, yeah, yeah. you suddenly realize, and it's only illuminated in a place that by design brings the greatest talent of the nation to come mm. together to help improve the quality of our legislation and therefore our lives and the way in which this, which I, I continue to consider the United Kingdom is the most civilized place on earth to live and it's it is because of the quality of our institutions and the people that run them but people don't get that message no well it's, they, it's, they sort of drown in the the 24 7 of media hoo-hoo it's ridiculous well it's a great uh, description of the lords and it's very lucky to have you in it nick and i'm incredibly grateful for you sparing the time it's been fascinating as it always is spending time with you thanks very much my pleasure jonathan